at a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions. We need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a mindful moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. Each chapter is written in a different genre. What? What? I know, right? (laughs) Is that allowed? Hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 130. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. If you'd like to help What Should I Read Next be the best it can be, there's a way to make your voice heard. Please go to whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash survey to answer questions about your reading life and your listening life. This is a survey we made just for you at What Should I Read Next headquarters, and we thank you so much in advance for taking five minutes to fill it out. That's whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash survey. Readers, here's a statistic that blew my mind recently. Did you know that the Nobel Prize for Literature has been awarded 110 times since it was founded in 1901, and in all that time, only 14 female authors have been awarded the honor? Well, today's guests, Kendra Winchester and Autumn Privet, are intent on giving brilliant female authors their due. Every month, their podcast, Reading Women, shines a spotlight on a different genre or type of author. Some of my favorite past themes on their show include women in translation, Southern literature, and women of color. So what better way to celebrate female authors on What Should I Read Next than a little roundtable literary matchmaking. Autumn, Kendra, and I are chatting today about reading women as little girls, our favorite recent books by female authors, and introducing each other to hidden gems we've never heard of before. You can bet we're going to drop a whole lot of fabulous authors and titles in this episode, so get your to-be-read list ready and let's get to it. Kendra, Autumn, welcome to the show. It's exciting to be here. Oh, well, it's such a treat for me to talk to not only literary podcasters, because it's a smaller crowd than you might expect in podcast verse, but also (laughs) um, just to talk to two thorough book nerds. And I'm thinking that you all don't think that is a bad thing. Oh, no. Highest compliment. Thank you so much. It's a badge of honor. Absolutely. I'm happy to hear it. Wear it with pride. (laughs) Your all's podcast is called Reading Women, and I've been listening for, we're at the years mark, plural now, aren't we? Yeah, we have been on for almost two years. I'm so excited to get to hear the behind the scenes origin story. I came to it late. I didn't (laughs) listen in order, like from the pilot forward. It took me a little while to catch on that reading women is about women reading books written by women. (laughs) So I would love to hear your candid origin story about how you came to create a podcast about women reading books by women and the story behind your tagline, which is so beautiful. Kendra and I started this podcast after I moved to Atlanta. I didn't really have any friends yet here, and we were kind of talking all the time. 
And one day we, I said, you know what, Kendra, we should really have a podcast because we're talking about books and we both had kind of gotten interested in books by women, mostly because, well, we met in grad school. And so when we were in grad school, we realized that most of the books we were reading were by men, specifically like dead white men. And we were yeah. like, surely there are women <laughs> out there writing books. We Somewhere. just have to find them. We met in James Joyce class, and I think that would convert anyone to <laughs> more books by women. It started out as a joke, actually. We were both into podcasts, and Autumn was like, Ira Glass, This American Life, I love podcasts. I was like, okay, sure. And then she converted me wholeheartedly. <laughs> so it was a joke. Oh, we could do this. Yeah. At what point did it become real? Like, oh my gosh, we could actually do this. January 20, what was it? 2016, I think, is when we got going. And then we actually started working on it seriously in March. And then we launched in June, June 1st. That is not slow. To back up a little, what specifically were you all studying in grad school? English Lit. So it was an MA program. So it's a sh- shorter and we didn't really have majors and minors, but we were both really interested in like more contemporary fiction. Uh-huh. So they would work with you since they were a smaller program. They would work with you. And if you wanted to emphasize in a certain era, you could talk to your professors and then they would get together and work that out and like, okay, you can do this track, you know, kind of like unofficial, whatever, to get the information and the learning that you wanted to do. That was cool. I wrote most of my papers on like gender and uh, feminism and different things. And they were like, okay, cool. This is what you want to study. We will work with you. So that was cool. All the study about feminism (laughs) in the early 1900s. (laughs) Okay. The pipe dream that just flitted through my mind is I want your syllabi and a highlighter. (laughs) That sounds amazing. When you all entered grad school for English literature, what did you have in mind for what you would do with it, with those degrees? So for me, I have wanted to be a writer for as long as I could possibly imagine. And when I was like 11, I didn't really understand what that meant. (laughs) As I got older, I started working, kind of understood a little bit more. So the reason I went to grad school to get English was just to learn more about storytelling and just to be a better writer. Some of the best writers are, are really good readers. That was the reason I went back to school. How many years ago was this that you all met in grad school? Oh, man. Wait. Pushing six, right? Yeah. You met your husband in the same class you met me. That's I did. Story. Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Life-changing, earth-shaking. Oh, yes. <laughs> so how's the writing life going now, six years later? I'm employed as a full-time writer now and, you know, right on the side and podcast. So it's all very writerly and literary for me, which is great. I love it. <laughs> I went, I did writing undergrad and my last year in undergrad, I discovered publishing And so I ended up being a grad assistant in grad school at the university's publishing house. And so I worked more with that. And I did a lot of developmental editing, which is like macro editing. So like structure, Mm -hmm. big ideas, stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's my favorite. And so that's really what um, I do, do freelance stuff. Um, I also do like some copywriting. It's a little bit of everything. What kind of work do you edit? Uh, I do a lot of nonfiction. My emphasis in undergrad, I did took mostly nonfiction classes. And so I do like informational, structural type stuff and geek out over that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm terrible at that personally. And I think it's a fantastic thing that people with that training and that kind of brain exist in this world. So thank you for your service. <laughs> it's good for writers and it's really, really good for readers because it makes the written word so much better. A good structure is, to me, it's my favorite part of a book. So sometimes I drive out and crazy because I'll be like, the structure was terrible. I can't stand the story. And she's like, but it was so beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) That does happen. Or she'll be like, did you notice the parallelism in the chapters? And I'm like, what? What? What parallelism? Okay, I'm Kendra. (laughs) 
Sometimes I think the best structure is when you don't notice, but sometimes as a reader, I'd love to notice the way an author has employed a structure really brilliantly. So do you have thoughts on whether a good structure is one that disappears or one that can, you know, can, can be seen? I feel like it depends on the author. I think of something like Pachinko, which I just read, and like the structure in that book is really important because it's oriented in time, right? So it's helpful to kind of follow that map or that timeline as you read through the book. And so in that sense, like, I think it's perfect for that. But there's other books where I feel like maybe not so much, like I just want it to go away and I just want to be immersed in the characters and their lives and what they're doing, Mm -hmm. their personalities. So it just depends on the story for me. Like, I'm going to mention a book by a man. Is that allowed? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) So I read A Gentleman in Moscow last year. Mm -hmm. And that's a a more tolls. Yes. I read the book. I enjoyed the book, but I didn't realize until I heard him speak about the book that he employed what he called a doubling structure, where at the beginning of the book, the chronology is you hear what happens on day one, and then on day two, and then on day four, and then on day eight. And all of a sudden in the middle, the chapters are four years and eight years and 16 years apart. And then he does the whole reverse chronology where the time is far apart and then really close together is a mirror image of the first half of the book. And I did not notice at all. But when he said that's what he did, I was like, oh, I like that about you. It sounds beautiful. I have it on my shelf right now. I need to pick it up and go look at this. And also every chapter starts with the letter A. And I did feel kind of like adult for not noticing that either. But, you know, it's like 30 pages apart when all the chapters begin. I think I was that way with All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr. Mm -hmm. And I read it and was like, this is amazing. Couldn't have read it. I was like, did you notice the structure? And I was like, (laughs) nope, not at all. Um, But then after she kind of explained it to me, I went back and looked at it. I was like, oh, it's so clear now that you've explained it to me. Oh, I think it's the difference of brains of reading like a reader, reading like a writer and reading like an editor. I imagine them as switches in my brain. And so like you can flip them on and off. One of my writing teachers was like, if you can't learn to do this, you will never be able to read like a reader ever again. And that's a problem because you need to like test your own work, so to speak. I think it's very interesting to see how that works between different people in different industries. And I think it's pretty cool. (laughs) That's so interesting because I hear people talk about reading like a writer all the time, but I don't know if reading like an editor is a phrase I've ever heard. Can you explain a little bit how that's different from reading like a writer? I think they're probably very similar. I think it would depend on the person. But for me, it's like a a macro. Like you want to see the moving parts. You want to see how it works. Reading like a writer, you're also thinking about the reader and how they're going to you know, go through. While I feel like an editor, you have to be aware of what the writer's doing as well as what the reader could possibly be feeling. Seeing all of that at the same time, for me, that's how it works. I don't think, obviously, that works for everyone. <laughs> Watching all the mechanical parts work and seeing, I don't know, actually seeing the puppeteer. I'm going to run out of metaphors here, but you get the idea. <laughs> I love metaphors. I don't know where that puts me in that whole situation, but I really do. Okay, so if you're reading like an editor, you need to see how the writer pulled it off. Yes. Oh, man. I wish we were in book club together on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> So going deeper into your roots, not just as students, but as readers, like back when you were kids, maybe, what are the books that inspired you to really love and want to read now books written by women? For me, I got started really early on the Nancy Drew series. As a kid, like those books were just so eye-opening to me on so many levels because I'd read series books, I'd read chapter books, but that was like the first time where I saw a book with a very strong female lead who was doing things without permission. <laughs> right? I mean, 
you know, like she would tell her dad, Hey dad, I'm going to go take my convertible and go over like four towns <laughs> over and like check into some bad guys. And he's like, okay, see you at dinner. You know, for me, that was just like really like a big deal for me. Like, Whoa, she's so cool. That kind of got me onto mysteries. Then I went from there to like, ended up reading like Sherlock Holmes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I didn't really think much about it until I went to grad school. And then I started thinking about it again. And I went to a live performance, uh, a one-man show or one-woman show of A Good Man is Hard to Find by Flannery O'Connor. So I was watching this production, this, this That's girl. That's a thing? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It was amazing. Like, she memorized the entire short story and, like, staged it dramatically. And it was incredible. And so after I saw that, I was like, wait a minute, how have I never heard about Flannery O'Connor and I grew up in the South? Like, what's going on here? And so that kind of got me started on this journey of looking for Southern women writers <laughs> and then coupled that with this contemporary literature class I took where there, I think there was only like two women in it, something like that. And so it just kind of like built up from there. I was just thinking about how when people get uptight about Harry Potter saying like those kids are disobeying adults, it never occurred to me to be like, well, so was Nancy Drew. <laughs> Nobody's <laughs> complaining about her, but it's totally well. true. <laughs> so when I was growing up, I really loved fantasy books. And most of them, you know, are led by these young dudes who discover they're super special and then they go save the world. And I got really tired of that because I was like, well, girls obviously can do this too. So then I discovered Tamara Pierce and she writes a lot of books with strong female leads. And all of them are like these, you know, high fantasy novels that are, you know, written for YA, uh, YA audience. And so my, one of my favorites was Alana the Lioness Quartet, which is the first quartet that she did. And she just writes a lot of different amazing young women. And they would go and and do things. There's like a spy master. There are lady knights, which is really cool. Then later, I discovered Virginia Woolf. And that's actually where our logo comes from, is Flannery on one side with the glasses and then Virginia Woolf's on the other side. And that's because A Room of One's Own really introduced me to feminism, that women also deserve to be educated and are, you know, basically people too. And we're often ignored in, you know, written world or we're like, well, they're just women. And I think you can see that literary critics refer to her not by her last name, but by Mrs. Woolf. And it's like this derogatory thing they add on there to remind everyone that she is a woman and she is writing. Well, and I think that's kind of where it was reading a, a room of one's own, that quote throughout history, anonymous was most often a woman. I know I'm misquoting it, but that was kind of to the inspiration for our tagline, reclaiming half the bookshelf, because Kendra and I would have these conversations and we're like, why is it that like 75 to 95% of the books we read throughout our whole reading lives were by men when it's like 50, 50% of the population. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where that came from was like taking back space on the bookshelf that women haven't been given. You know, even if you think about like all the women who've had to write under pseudonyms throughout history. I'm really curious to hear now that you're out of school and freed from the syllabi that you are given (laughs) from an institution, especially when you're studying classic literature, how you feel now when you walk into a bookstore? Do you feel like women writing contemporary works occupy their half of the bookshelf now? Or do you see this still as an uphill climb? And I'm asking the from the perspective as someone who 
occasionally will think about this as I'm looking over the shelves, but more often I'm looking for the books I'm excited about, the books written by friends. For me, going into a bookstore, like I see books by women, but for me, it's the fact that up at the top where you're studying literature, capital L literature, you might say that hasn't quite reached that. Like there's plenty of books by women out there. Like you just look and there's just so many, but it's the fact they're not being recognized or being taken quote unquote seriously. So for example, we have these stats on the front of our, our page about like how many women have won the Nobel and how many have won the Pulitzer. And there's other stats as well that we could include, but um, we haven't had to change those since we started the podcast. And I think that's just very telling that women just still aren't recognized that they can also write as seriously and as brilliantly as men. Still, like I'll read an article and someone will say something about women's fiction as like othering it as if it's not like real fiction. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And not the answer I was hoping for, but yep, I see it. <laughs> yeah. Like, where's the men's fiction? <laughs> <laughs> People often ask us like, oh, well, do you not read books by guys anymore then? And like we do, like we really do. And there's nothing against, we don't have anything against it. It's just, there's a demographic of women, especially minority women, but women in general who have not really had the limelight. So we're trying to like give people recommendations for books they might not have otherwise seen or otherwise picked up at the bookstore. Right. I'd love to hear from each of you, what is one of the books that it has been a joy and a pleasure and a service to the world to put into the limelight that you think people otherwise might not have seen? Do you each have one darling that you just love to put in readers' laps? <laughs> I mean, I hope that you have like 30, but... What are we going to recommend? We always have this conversation and we're just like, <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think for me, like one of the books that... I often recommend is The Lonely Hearts Hotel by Heather Emile. And it is a very quirky, very different kind of book. I loved it. And it's a book that I don't think would have been on my radar because it was a book published by a Canadian author. And she's written a ton of books, but she hadn't really gotten much publicity in the U.S. And I don't even remember how we came across her book, but we read it and we got to interview her and she was delightful. And that was a book that I don't think I would have seen on the new releases at Barnes and Noble otherwise. Yeah. It's not a title I'm familiar with, but I'm going to get my hands on this tomorrow. <laughs> One of mine would be Sorry to Disrupt the Peace by Patty Yumi Cottrell. It's out from McSweeney's, which is a small like indie press, the most unreliable narrator in the history of ever. And she's just so quirky. And I don't think I would have found that book if I wasn't looking specifically for books by women by indie presses or the author, I believe, is Korean American. So I would, you know, I just wouldn't have found it if I wasn't working on reading women. So I just really loved it. Oh, that was great. Also, the, the the actual make of the book is amazing. The disclaimer is actually on the naked hardcover, and then it has like the um, book jacket over it. It's really beautiful. I love book design. That's another thing I'm just going to geek out about. <laughs> I love that. All right, Kendra and Autumn, to give our readers lots of recommendations for what to read next, if they do want to branch out, I can only imagine that you'll have lots of experience holding readers' hands as they enter this brave new world of fiction written by females. I would love to do a little roundtable literary matchmaking if you're up for it. Each share two books we love and share ideas about what we may each enjoy reading next. How does that sound? Sounds, Sounds great. Good. Kendra, do you want to start? Sure. 
the first book I wanted to share was a book that I felt hadn't gotten a, a lot of press, maybe, and that is Jane Unlimited by Kristen Kishore. And this is an older YA book from a new imprint. Kristen Kishore became pretty famous by writing Graceling. Uh, it's a high fantasy YA novel. And I really enjoyed it. I think it like late high school, early college, but she hadn't written anything for years. And that's because she decided to take on a novel inspired by a choose-your-own-adventure book, which is fantastic. So you have Jane, whose aunt has recently passed away, and you know she randomly ends up with this friend who happens to have a dad who has a multi-million dollar mansion. So she ends up on this island where the mansion, is, of course, is located. And so she's standing on this stairway, and she's on the like the landing. And you, as the reader, once you read all of this intro material, you choose, you make this one choice of which character you want to follow. And based on that decision, you can jump around to whatever chapter you choose and read that. And then each chapter is written in a different genre. What? What? I know, right? (laughs) Is that allowed? Who comes up with this stuff? That's amazing. At first, I was not happy that she had chose to leave her genre that she'd been writing in for several years. But then I decided, okay, well, I'll, I'll read this. And her just her writing is so stellar. And she writes one in a mystery format. There's a spy thriller. There's a sci-fi one. There's a fantasy one. And then there's a horror run, horror one, which creeped me out so much. But what she said in an interview was, you have to read all of them to actually answer all of the questions posed in the first section. And she ordered them in a certain way. You don't have to read them that way, but she ordered them in a certain way so you'd receive certain tidbits of information so you would understand what was going on. It's just a delight to read. It's fun. It's different. And I think YA readers would love it because there's so many Easter eggs in the different chapters and it could be reread multiple times to find all of them. That sounds like a lot of fun. Um, And the second one I picked out was something for all of the language and grammar nerds out there. In Other Words by Jhumpa Lahiri. And it's translated by Anne Goldstein. She's the translator of Elena Ferrante. So, you know, you know, it's going to be amazing. Wait, wait, wait. I've read all these, but I didn't realize the translator was the same. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, she does a great job. I love her. She recently also translated something else that's just coming out that I can't remember. I think it's like the Neapolitan Chronicles that Elena Ferrante blurbed. So she worked on that as well. But what Jhumpa Lahiri, you know, wrote the interpretive maladies and the namesake and the lowland in English. And then she went to Italy and was like, hey. I like writing. I'll learn Italian and I'll write essays in Italian because <laughs> that's what you do when you're Jhumpa Lahiri. She wrote essays about her learning Italian and her basically love affair with the Italian language and learning it. And she said she wanted someone else to translate her Italian writing into English because she would be tempted to alter it and to make her sound better than she actually was. And then when you open the book, the Italian is on one side and the English is on the other side. So you can actually see the translation in process. And you can see Jhumpa Lahiri like thoughts and different things going through the book. And it's a very short book already, um, but with the translation, I'd say it's only like um, under 100 pages of different essays. But it, it was great because you got to see a master of her craft learning, almost like learning her craft all over again. I love her. I have seen her on the prize winner list for 10 years and just never... I think my poor brain was like, I don't feel like I'm in the mood for serious literature right now. But then I forget what finally inspired me to pick one of her works up, but it was probably a reader who'd read it and loved it. And it was certainly one of my like real life friends because that's what's most likely to get me to pick up a book. And I was like, oh, but it's so good. Why didn't anybody tell me it was so good? I read The Interpreter of Maladies last year and I felt the same way. I was like, oh, why did I wait so long to read her? 
I'm glad it's not just me. And that was a real thing. <laughs> she also wrote an essay about book design and jackets is like this little pamphlet. Yes. And it was really good as well. The clothing of books. Is that what it's called? Yes. Mm-hmm. It's so yes. fun. So delightful. Anything she touches just turns to gold. I just love her. I have the namesake is on my immediate TBR. I found a used copy and I cannot wait to read it. I'm very excited. Oh, I I did the same thing. I ha- So I picked up the namesake at a used book sale and I also just got... The Lowland, which I haven't read yet, mm. but I stumbled upon it. I was like, I am going to want to read this. Okay, Autumn, what are two of your favorites? So I have a hard time picking book favorites. Mm-hmm. So I tried to pick two books that I felt like represented who I am as a reader and maybe books people hadn't have read yet. The first one is The Big Green Tent. And I'm not even going to try to pronounce her last name. <laughs> it's a Russian novel. Yes, it's Russian. So like all the... All the letters are going to be jumbled up. I always say that, like, I'm an accidental lover of Russian literature. I've not read any of, like, the big classics, but a lot of my favorite books in the last year have been set in Russia or have Russian characters. And this is a very, very big book. It's almost 600 pages. That's another thing that I love is really, really big books. And so this one is like a very long epic story about this group of people living in Soviet Russia. Each of the chapters is kind of from a different point of view. So you kind of don't start to put all the pieces together until the end. And it's really hard to summarize a almost 600 page novel it it starts in moscow in like the 1950s and then like moves forward from there and so you kind of see like these people like how their lives are all intertwined without them knowing about it and the prose is really beautiful and even though it's translated from russian like you don't get the feeling that it's translated or like the language is stilted it's very very beautiful she kind of explores like the Russian literary scene as well. So if you have read a lot of Russian literature or familiar with it, there's a lot of little Easter eggs hidden in there about the different authors and the books that people are reading. It actually didn't take me very long to read it. Surprisingly engrossing for a almost 600 page book. If anyone is interested in like Russian literature, even if you're not, like if you just like big books, the big green tent is like a great pick for that. I think it sounds amazing and I'm totally intimidated by the length. So Thank you for that word of encouragement. Like I said, it's surprisingly like a really fast read. And like, um, I was just looking back at my review on Goodreads and I have a very long review on Goodreads. Um, (laughs) But it has like a lot of themes about like friendship and love and work and politics and all these things. So because it's about people, I think that's why you get, it's really easy to get swept up in it because you start to really care about these characters and who they are and what they're doing and what their fate is going to be. Okay. What's another book that you've loved recently? A Manual for Cleaning Women, and it is a collection of short stories by Lucia Berlin. And I saw this book on NPR, oh, I guess it'd be like three years ago now. You might have seen the cover. It's like this peach cover, and it has like a hotel key, like an old-fashioned hotel key on the front of it. And when we were researching for short stories last year, I rediscovered it, and I was like, oh, I've been meaning to read that book for like two years now. So I added it to my list. And this was a surprisingly like wonderful short story collection. And I'm a huge short story fan. I read them all the time. And I have a joke on the podcast where it's like, Two out of three of my picks are usually short story collections. (laughs) And Kendra's like, did you do that on purpose? I'm like, no, it just kind of accidentally happened. I don't really know. So there's 43 short stories in this collection, but they range from like really short, like just a couple pages to more kind of novella length. And her view on the everydayness of humanity is just incredible. 
one of her stories is actually structured around bus stops, the times that the buses stop at different bus stops, which I thought was a great way to structure a story because it's like following this woman based off of like where she is on her bus route every day. There's a story that I remember, too, about this younger girl who befriends this older couple, and she kind of starts in being friends with them, thinking that she's going to be able to help them. And then she discovers, actually, they're the ones who've been helping her without even noticing it. So they're just all like these really kind of normal circumstances that she really elevates into something special. I've also been meaning her to read that for two years. <laughs> Shoot, now it's my turn. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, the first one's easy. This year I loved, 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 loved This Must Be the Place by Maggie O'Farrell. So when you all interviewed her as an author on your podcast, I got to hear her talk about how she approaches her work and her writing in general. And then without any spoilers, I got to hear her specifically talk about her memoir that was really, really unusual that I read and really enjoyed. My favorite of her works, and I've read probably 70% of them now, is This Must Be the Place. I just really love how I feel like she climbs into people's heads. That one's interesting in structure because she tells it across all different places and times through the lens of many different people. And she has some interesting um, narrative devices, like she uses an auction catalog from someplace swanky like Sotheby's. And she uh, has a transcript of an interview that's in print to advance her story. And I just loved how she told this story about like messy, complicated relationships in a way that was, it felt really real to me and really worthwhile, emotionally fraught, but not over overwhelming and just like so absorbing. I loved it so much. And I've recommended that book probably way too many times <laughs> in the past. I don't know, since I first read it. And then for my second pick, I'm going to go with Station Eleven because I was talking about that with a friend today. So that's Emily mm-hmm. St. John Mandel. It came out a couple of years ago. I am a rereader. I like to reread books because I like to go back with the editor's eye and see that was such an amazing experience. How did the author do it? Like, I really like to go back with that lens um, because her structure is a little bit unusual. She tells a story that's just packed with really strong moments. And that's not easy to do as an author. So though I'm a rereader, I don't reread often. And that's one that compelled me to come back to it. And I really admire that. I'm always looking for a work that's similar, but not the same, just because I love that reading experience so much. And I'm really excited that she has a new book coming out in, I think, not till 2019. I think it's next summer. But yeah. I'll, I'll wait for it. Yeah, Autumn's a huge fan of Station Eleven. I, I am. Have you read any of her backlog? I started last night in Montreal, but I was doing it at the pool when I was supposed to be keeping an eye on my kids. And I think that was the wrong place in time. Probably. She does interesting th- things to structure in that book, too. That's the only other one of her books that I've read. And the structure is really interesting. Maybe give it a second try. I appreciate the encouragement. Thank you. <laughs> because sometimes I toy with the idea of picking something up again or taking a chance on a book that sounds weird, but maybe it'll be my kind of weird. And I just need mm-hmm. another reader who's been there to say, yes, jump in. She's a brilliant <laughs> writer. Definitely. All right. So based on those, what do you all think for what we should all read next? My pick for Autumn is a book about a woman, and that is Jacoby by William Ritter. So I was thinking about this (laughs) earlier today. Autumn really loves mysteries. And so I'm always also trying to get her to read a little more fantasy. And this is a combination of both. So this is about a girl who is a British girl who's coming to the United States in like, I don't know, the late 1800s. And she makes this guy uh, named Jacoby. 
and he solves supernatural crimes. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. And I feel like we all need those books that are just like escapist reads that we can help us de-stress. And so she and Jacoby run around and solve crime and it's a quartet. So there's more, but they're really short. They're YA novels. I don't know. There's just something about them where it combines the weirdness of almost like Sherlock Holmes if Watson was a girl and it was supernatural. There's this like this ghost woman that inhabits their house and Jacoby's just so neurotic and weird. And I just think they're a lot of fun and I think they're right up Autumn's alleys. I've seen that book around. I know the reviews are amazing, but I haven't talked to another reader who's read it. So I really appreciate that you have and you talking about it. Yeah. And I think it's definitely just a type of book that it's not like for all reading moods either. It's just for just something fun that you want to read. So sometimes I'll read something devastating, like Everything Here is Beautiful by Amir T. Lee. And I just needed a break from the world. And so uh -huh. that's like a type of book that I'll pick up. Autumn, you know, she'll read like really intense stuff. If we wrote a book together, that would be the book. <laughs> and for you, Anne, I noticed that both your books deal with different timelines and are really a look at character. So I also love This Must Be the Place by Maggie O'Farrell. I absolutely love her. In fact, the couple months ago, I went on Book Depository and I bought all the matching covers for Maggie O'Farrell. And oh. I have got a project on myself. I'm going to read them in backwards order. So I'm rereading This Must Be the Place with a couple friends here in a little bit. And so I'm going to recommend Emily Ruskovich's Idaho. Have you read that book? No, I've seen it and I've thought about it, but I haven't read it. Okay. Well, this is a book that is a very quiet book. She's an excellent writer on a sentence level. And the book is about a couple living um, in the on this farm um, in Idaho. And you know that it's this music teacher and this really quiet man there's a mystery behind it. And this is a very nonlinear structure. In fact, one of my friends was looking up information about this book and she noted that the author had mentioned that she was about to turn the book in and was still swapping sections because she couldn't quite decide how she wanted it to present. Like it's so quiet, it sneaks up on you. You're not quite sure what happened. And then you jump forward in time and then you're like, wait, what am I doing here? And you read this <laughs> section and then you jump backwards in time and you read that section and at first it seems like there's no order to it, but then you realize that the author is giving you information in a certain order in a particular way for a reason. And it's a really intense look at a family um, and at their circumstances and about what it means to be a mother in certain circumstances because you know something horrible happened to the two girls um, on this farm. And so the father's devastated and then something happens to their mother Jenny and you're not sure what happened and then his second wife is I think probably what we would call the protagonist but not all of the sections are from her POV and it's just something different and at first I wasn't sure if I liked it but the more I think about it the more I realized more that the author did and the structure especially is amazing. I love books like that where I finish and I think I'm not sure what I think but then three weeks later I realized that I'm thinking about that book all the time. It's, it's beautiful. And the cover of it is gorgeous. It's like, it has oh, the words Idaho. so pretty. I don't think I've read what it was about, but I've seen it. That's more than I've ever heard about the plot. So thank you. And it's very difficult to describe as well, because there is a synopsis on like Goodreads in different places, but I feel like it just doesn't capture like the breadth and, and the scope of the novel very well. It's more like where you start out from. That's really the starting place that they're describing rather than what that novel is actually about. I'll pick for Kendra first, since she's read basically all the new books ever. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to go back into the archives. And I recently discovered Joan Didion. As Kendra said, she she studied nonfiction, likes nonfiction. I don't know that you read a lot of nonfiction much anymore. 
I'm going to recommend Slouching Towards Bethlehem by Joan Didion for Kendra because, first of all, Joan Didion is just like a really amazing woman and a really amazing journalist. Even though she's writing nonfiction, her prose is just incredible. And the way that she can set a scene is just really fantastic. Kind of paints a picture of what California was like and things like the 60s is like a lot of when her journalism was. It's just really something else. Her other book, The Year of Magical Thinking, which is where she's talking about the death of her husband. And that book just like broke me down and I couldn't recover for like a couple weeks. But so I'm not recommending that one. But I think that you'd really like this collection of essays of hers just because of who she was as like an important writer and as an important woman writer, and then also because of the nonfiction part of it. For Anne, I'm going to recommend The Weight of Him by Ethel Rowan. Have you read it? No, but it's on my bookshelf. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Cool. <laughs> so this is a book that came out February of last year, and we actually got to talk to Ethel on the podcast. And not only is she like an amazing, wonderful human being, but um, her book, I feel like it covers a really important topic that isn't covered much in fiction in general. So it's the story of Billy Brennan and his son recently committed suicide. And so the story kind of follows, well, him in particular, not his family as much, as they're kind of unpacking how to deal with this thing that's happened to them. And on top of it is the fact that like Billy weighs over 400 pounds. And so after his son dies, he decides he's going to lose half of his body weight to raise money for suicide awareness. And they live in Ireland as well. So it's set in Ireland. So this is really beautiful story and like a really beautiful metaphor for like he's literally you know he's lost his son so he's lost a part of himself and she's a beautiful writer and really enjoyed this book that sounds really good and i already have it in the house that makes it easy it's a sign (laughs) (laughs) all right here's what i'm thinking for you all kendra i'm wondering if you've read my lady jane Is that a title you know? No, I haven't read that one. Well, you mentioned that everybody needs their escapist reads. And this also has a fun writing, editing kind of angle, because this is the only book I think I've ever read that was written by three co-authors. I didn't even realize it till I got to the acknowledgments. And they said, hey, thanks to our agents and our editors who didn't say, you are flat out crazy when we said that three people wanted to write a book together. (laughs) You like fantasy and YA, and that's why I like this for you. So this one is just a lot of fun because sometimes you need a book that just keeps you turning the pages, that makes you laugh, that makes you smile. Oh, but how to describe what it's about. So it's the story of Lady Jane Grey. It's a Tudor retelling. It's set during the reign of the young Edward, whatever number he was. (laughs) But instead of the divide between Protestants and Catholics, we have a war between, um, you know, fantastical enemies that the authors have concocted. And I like it for you also as people who like to read women, because one of the quotes that I remember from reading it a couple of years ago was, she was a woman who wore pants. She could not be trusted but so it's a lot of fun and it's lighthearted, but it's also super well plotted it's really smartly written how does that sound while you were talking i was looking of course i was looking it up on goodreads <laughs> that's what we do it sounds really good i think a booktuber recommended it it's also going to be a series yes and this is fairly new news it's going to be a trilogy the second installment comes out this summer well it sounds fantastic so i'm just gonna have to go pick one up because it definitely sounds up my alley. Well, I hope you enjoy it. Autumn, I'm wondering if you've read any, and the odds seem pretty good that you have because she's so prolific, but have you read anything by Chitra Banerjee Devakaruni? I 
actually have not. Okay. So I really love her. Um, she's a Houston writer with Indian roots and she has this novel that I just loved. They came out two years ago. It's called before we visit the goddess. And the reason I like it for you, especially is that we got to talk to her for the modern Mrs. Darcy book club. I think this was novel number 17 or 18 for her. And she said that to grow as a writer, every book she writes, she sets herself a new challenge. And with this book, she wanted to write a novel, but she wanted it to be a novel that unfolded in a series of short stories. So it's it's not a long book, but it is told as a series of stories and every story completely stands on its own. And it really reminds me in a way of Maggie O'Farrell in that you can't understand the whole story until you understand the composite parts, like the different Mm -hmm. people's perspectives and the different events that happened over the course of many, many years that go to make up this one moment in time in one person's life. And I don't know how you feel about stories of um, complicated families and especially unlikely friendships are a big feature in all her books, but I personally really love those. If those are elements that appeal to you in fiction, then that's an extra enticement for Before We Visit the Goddess. Oh, absolutely. That sounds amazing. It's so good. I really love it. And I wasn't sure about, I just didn't know what I was getting into. Um, I almost expected it to be a religious or a spiritual book. It's a really beautiful book, that's for sure. Um, But then I sat down at my kitchen counter one night. I'm like, I'm just going to give it a try and see what it might be like. And I don't think I got up for hours. (laughs) (laughs) The title comes from this chance encounter that two strangers have together and one of them says something to another that really makes a huge difference in how they move forward. A man is on his way to visit in a temple. He's going to see the goddess, but this chance encounter on the way changes what happens there. And that is where the title comes from. Just in case you have weird title hangups, because I've already made several (laughs) confessions in that regard as we've talked. (laughs) No, that sounds great. I'm surprised I haven't heard of her. But then again, I'm not surprised. Like there's so many amazing writers out there that I've not even heard of. Yes, I have that experience all the time. Like how have I not? And yet there's so many. I kind of like knowing that I can never plumb the bottom of the depths of amazing writers out there. And it kind of makes me super depressed. It's true. true. But maybe that's a good tension for a book lover to live in. (laughs) Thank you all so much for talking books with me. This has been a delight. Absolutely. It's been a lot of fun. Hey, readers. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kendra and Autumn today. Head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for all three of us and let us know in the comments what literary women you look up to. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 130, that's 130, and it's also where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Readers, we're bouncing around the world a little bit with next week's episode. I'm in Louisville, Kentucky. I'll be talking to Clara, who currently lives in the UK, but she moved there recently from New Zealand, and she came to me with a very specific request, and I am excited to try and give her some recommendations that fit her needs. Here's a sneak peek. I have to pinch myself constantly that I have both lived in London and in Bath. Things like walking down the Royal Crescent, which is obviously a World Heritage Site, but also, you know, the scenes from Persuasion and being in London. And I'm a huge Agatha Christie fan as well. And the little villages make me feel like I'm living in an Agatha Christie novel. So I feel like I'm constantly jumping between all my favorite novels. 
Readers, that's coming your way next Tuesday. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a thing, or we will notify you of new episodes by email if you sign up for our list at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Thanks to the people who make this show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.